coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. And before you do all that, you have to make sure your feet, your hips, and your shoulders are pointed that direction too. You've got to make sure that you're you're physically pointing in the direction you want to cast. And most people think um, that the rotation for change of direction casts in the spay game come from the shoulders. Well, it actually comes from the hips because you can't really turn your shoulders without turning your hips. That was Charles St. Pierre with a great reminder for your next spay casting lesson. Spay casting, spay gear, and Mount St. Helens steelhead today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. want to remind you, this is the last day we're doing the big giveaway for the Steelhead School. This is the uh, Steelhead School with Jeff Liske out in the Great Lakes and myself. We're going to be heading there this December, early December. So if you want to up your spay game, um, this is the one to go for. This episode definitely with Charles digs into it, but if you want to get some on-the-water connection to one of the other big gurus, uh, Jeff is the man. So uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now uh, to join that giveaway. The last day we're going to close up, uh, close that up tonight, and we're going to be drawing a winner out uh, on that soon. If you want to try and grab a slot right now and uh, enter the giveaway and grab a slot and just get one of those uh, slots, <laughs> you can send me a DM or email dave at wetflyswing.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, putting together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that trip of a lifetime. These trips are focused on floating down the river in remote Alaska, fishing for rainbows, salmon, covering everything. Adam up at uh, Fishhound has it all covered. We are getting very close to heading out on this trip. In fact, by the time this goes live, I'm going to be uh, coming back from that trip. So I'll have a big, uh, lots more news on this one. But if you want to check out uh, Adam right now, that's Fishhound Expeditions. Uh, you can go to wetflyswing.com slash fishhound. That's F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-D. Go get that trip of a lifetime. We're also sponsored by Country Financial, who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. I connected with Dalton uh, recently and uh, been loving his dedication to serving the outdoor community and the fishing community. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your life's assets are protected. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash country right now. That's C-O-U-N-T-R-Y, country financial. Check out Dalton and, uh, and connect with a cool local agent. Charles St. Pierre takes us to the river to find out how to up your spay game today. Charles takes us and walks us through his spay casting school, Northwest Spay Casting, a bunch of great tips uh, that you can start digging into today and uh, increase, in your, increase in your loop, increase in your, uh, your game there. And he also digs into all the gear you need for what he does, and we also talk about some fishing. Uh, obviously, he's, uh, he's a big steelhead fisherman, so it's a good story. We also get the Mount St. Helens story before and after the eruption. He was there and he remembers steelhead fishing Mount St. Helens, the Tootle River, before that thing erupted, which is a cool story. So without further ado, here we go. Charles St. Pierre. How's it going, Charles? Hey, Dave. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for uh, taking a little time uh, this morning to uh, talk about spay casting and some of the stuff you have going out there. I've 
you know, I heard about you a while back. I can't remember exactly when or from who, but uh, it was, you know, definitely a few of our guests have noted uh, you over the years. But um, I want to talk about spade. You're a spade casting instructor, obviously, you know, fisherman. So we're going to talk about that. But uh, before we dig into the deep, the technical stuff, bring us back to how you first got into fly fishing. Well, uh, well, thanks for having me on, Dave. Yeah. Thank you for uh, inviting me to participate. I n- understand that this is the new way to reach the next generation. So that's right. Um, happy to help <laughs> out. Um, my dad started taking me fishing when I was about eight years old. Um, and I grew up, you know, fishing with gear and bait, but mostly gear. Uh, I never really enjoyed bait fishing. Um, but that's how I got started and primarily rivers. Um, my dad used to get seasick, um, so we never uh, fished the salt water that much, but mostly rivers. And um, I grew up fishing the Nisqually River, the Puyallup River, the Skykomish, um, born and raised right here in Washington State, and still live here now, and um, the Toodle River before Mount mm. St. Helens. All right. Be- Toodle quite a bit. That was actually my dad's favorite summer run river. We used to catch summer runs in excess of twenty pounds. Oh wow! Um, pretty Whoa. amazing. Do you remember? Uh, I'm sure you do. How, how well do you remember Mount St. Helens erupting? I remember very well. Um, I wasn't. We weren't on the river, thank God, that day. But um, yeah, that was a that was a an amazing thing to watch. Um, and it was the news was constantly that for weeks on end prior to the eruption and then during and and then the aftermath of it but the local news carried all of it and i did see the cloud um because we're in tacoma we're about 30 miles 35 miles north of there and slightly to the west and the prevailing winds were blowing everything to eastern washington my wife um was it uh, was a student at um, in Pullman at the time, and she she saw the thing coming, and it turned day to night, and Jeez. it was pretty crazy. Wow! Which way was the black? Did the actual which way did it blow out? Did it blow it to the? Blew to the north. Yeah, to, to the, the north. north. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, to the east face. Pretty amazing. Yep. And uh, it changed the landscape of of that whole watershed, but that river still has fish in it. Yeah. Know? I was going to say how long, you know, after it happened, that was 80, I guess it was 1980, and that. And then how long did it take until like, did you actually ever fish it for steelhead again? And how long did it take to get steelhead? Because they kind of naturally went back, right? I fished it again, starting in the uh, late nineties, but for a long time, we left it alone just to mm-hmm. kind of give it a shot and see what happened. But there are fish there. And there are fish that uh, that do spawn in that. Uh, not in the main river. It's mostly the uh, the South Fork that they spawn in now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they spawn in a few tributaries of the of the main of the main river. But yeah, it took probably a good um, ten to fifteen years before they started doing some surveys and and watching those fish again but there you know it's a columbia tributary the tootle is a tributary to the columbia so they're 
there's still fish in the Columbia. So they just needed an opportunity to, to, to come back. Yeah. But yeah, it changed the whole landscape down there. And it was, uh, unfortunately, um, the river hasn't had the same robustness as far as, uh, numbers but none of them around here are right now so right yeah yeah everything's changed well i interrupted you i got you off track here keep keep on your story of i can't remember where we're at so yeah so my dad started yeah. taking me fishing these are the rivers that i fished locally growing up i didn't start fly fishing until um the early 90s um and i picked up a single hander and i started going for steelhead and after spending um, two winter seasons, single hand casting, sink tip and, and a weighted, uh, leech. I decided that I was going to learn how to spay cast cause I saw somebody doing it and I went bingo, the light kind of popped and yeah. said, that's the way to go. And so, yeah, started spay casting in the mid nineties and started teaching in the late nineties. Yeah, and started Northwest Spay Casting. Who were the, when you started in the early 90s, and that's an interesting time because the early 90s was, I mean, that was a start of the Northwest Spay, right? Late 80s, late 90s, that's when people really started getting into it. But it was also a time when steelhead runs in some rivers were pretty low at the time, right? I mean, there were some yeah. rivers, the Deschutes, things like that, and we're kind of back there again. But like early on in the 90s, who were those people out there, you know, that were the influence, the people that, you know, were doing it already? Well, uh, as far as like from the industry, uh, George Cook was a huge, uh, motivation, um, yep. and kind of turned the, uh, the spay casting, uh, dial up to 11. Yep. And there's, I mean, I, I don't remember who exactly it was that I saw fishing that day on the snow call meet. I think, um, there were two local guys who did it quite a bit there was dave sorrentino and who i believe used to guide on the skagit and the sock and then a, a guy from um the tacoma area uh i think he actually lived up in um enumclaw uh, near that area bonnie lake area he a gentleman by the name of tucker english and there were some of the local guys here in the in the south sound and then the morning hatch was our fly shop mm. down here in McGarry Sandstrom, who's the rep for Hardy now. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys that worked at funny, one of the guys that worked at the shop, um, used to be in the Navy was stationed in Scotland. And I described to him what I'd seen that day on the river. And he goes, Oh, that must be spay casting. Hmm. So he knew what spay casting was having been, um, involved with, uh, actually being a resident, temporary resident of the country of Scotland through the U S Navy. Mm -hmm. And then I hadn't met Ed and yep. I hadn't met Eck and I hadn't met, um, some of the, and Scott, some of the, the crew from up North, I hadn't met those cats yet, but, yep. uh, they were doing their thing then as well. That's right. Yeah. We had, uh, George on, he told a little bit of the history. We've had a couple episodes where we heard about the, the spay history, the Northwest spay and, yeah, all those guys were right in the middle of it, and and uh, it, yeah, it's interesting because it started. Well, it's been going a long time, but you know, you were there it's, early. It, yeah, yeah. It seems like it was just yesterday, but it has been yep. a long time. And 
Jimmy Green was the guy who everybody kind of rallied around. Oh yeah. And um he he kind of drove it from the sage standpoint in making rods and um and then the the whole thing with lines has evolved just tremendously since then. Yeah. Cuz at the time there were no other there were no um, weight forward lines for for spay there were just double tapers and and that's, right. um, that's about it i mean mm-hmm. i know gary stanstrom he messed around with some wolf taper uh, single handed lines for saltwater you know like size you know line size 12 and things mm-hmm. like that but it was always a challenge to get a a line that was um, going to load the rod with enough grains to get it to work Right. That is the, the biggest thing that we've seen is now when you see it now with your spay, your instructional, I mean, the transition of lines, is that the, you know, is that the biggest thing that's made it accessible to everybody now, as opposed to having just a giant stick with a long belly line? Is it, is it these tiny, shorter Skagit things that have, have changed the game? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the, the Skagit Scandi skews have, um, have made a big um, jump for for the consumer to make it you know more user friendly, um, but also too um, from a from how you like to fish at the different times of year. Um, you're going to be you know for winter winter and early spring fishing is definitely Skagit sink tip, you know water yeah. temperatures things like that, and then. Your Scandi for your late summer and early fall presentations that are either surface or subsur just subsurface presentations. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean it's really really revolutionized the sport and you know how we fish as well as where we fish and um, uh, you know being able to fish high bank, right? Uh, low water winter situations that Skagit is really hard to beat because you need you don't need any room hardly at all behind you to no to make a cast and so yeah. order lines definitely revolutionized the the application too that's right what was the when that skagit i mean we just had a podcast about on the skagit river um, but i don't remember on that on the history where did the name the skagit name do you remember who or where that first started i think it was coined by someone at rio i don't remember okay. who yeah, uh, the Rio um, was, uh, I believe, the first to um, develop that line and then give it a name. And you know, at the time, it it could have been Jim Vincent, it could have been um, Mike Kinney was somebody who was doing a lot of um, line work. But yeah, I don't know how it actually came to be called Skagit. I'm sure George had a had a hand in that as well so that's right yeah, yeah. I remember. i'll have to re-listen to that episode with george uh so cool well i want to dig into some spay casting tips you know today because that is a big struggle for a lot of people still i mean even myself right i've done plenty of spay casting but you know it's still not perfected so i want to talk about that uh does that sound good for you to dig into yeah. a little bit on yeah yeah sounds great so on the spay casting i wanted to dig into today just to talk about, maybe walk us through, you know, what it looks like if somebody comes to you and you're working with them on a, you know, basically a, a session 
And I'm, you know, I'm, some of that might be hard to do audio wise, but let's just take it to there. Say I'm coming, I'm talking to you. I want to up my game. Maybe it's somebody who do, has done a little bit of spade casting. They've got the Skagit line. They got the Scandi. But you know, when they get out there, there's there's times when the cast just doesn't go, and then they need some help. What's the first step? If I was to come to you today, uh, what would we be thinking about? What would you be doing with us? Well, the biggest thing I think for spay casting and transitioning from a single-handed rod or or any other kind of fishing is, you know, even though you're using a longer rod and um, you know different uh, different types of lines, you know, it's still a finesse sport. I think the see for beginners is to, you know, um, split wood, if you will, um, and. Yep use the the rod in a way that it simply can't you know i don't say it can't work but it's not the most efficient way to use the rod so i try to tell people that you know less is more these are typical things you're going to hear me say in the course of a lesson um or some time with me is is to slow down you have more time than you think you do um and and try to use use your bottom hand for not only the forward stroke, but also to load the rod for your D loop, mm. things like that. Right. Um, I, I really hammer on fundamentals, you know, first and foremost, because that's, that's a building block, um, to, uh, develop a better and more efficient technique. I also try to tell people, you know, having worked as a short period as a guide, you know, you're, a lot of what you're doing is managing expectations. Try to tell people, you know, 15 to 30 hours um, um, before you'll start to feel um, a connection and a, a rhythm with with a rod in your hands. Um, it's it's a process, and to expect 90, you know, 90 to 100 feet in the first two hours is pretty unrealistic um it's it's one of those it those things it, it takes time and um practice is a big part of it and i believe that you should separate your time to practice your technique from when you're actually fishing because when you, as soon as you tie a fly on you're no longer casting you're fishing and so i, I I preach to all my students to set aside time to, to practice where you tie on a tuft of yarn um, and don't even tie on a fly and, and practice and work on your, on your technique. But 15 to 30 hours before it will feel less awkward. And the awkwardness of it is what a lot of people struggle with because they've never done anything like that. Even if they've single-handed cast, they've never you know, other than maybe a roll cast to, to do anything that resembles spay. So, so you're saying uh, 15, 30 hours, like at least for just of practicing to start to, if you're new to it, that's a good starting point before you even tie in a fly. Yeah. I, I mean, 15 to 30 hours before you're going to start to see improvement. I don't think you necessarily have to do 15 to 30 hours to fish, but I, I do believe that you should set aside time that's separate from fishing to practice if you really want to get better at your casting technique because you don't have to be a great caster to fish well. You don't have to be a great fisherman to cast well or an angler to fish well. 
but they but you do have to have an idea of what it is you're trying to do and i think um a lot of people struggle with um their fishing because they don't put in enough time to practice and you know from a standpoint of you're making an investment in a a rod reel and line in excess of you know a thousand dollars um you know you might want to spend a couple hundred bucks on a lesson um and there's a lot of similarities um and parallels to golf uh, as there is with fly fishing it's a finesse thing but if you can learn to do it more efficiently you can generate more energy and you can generate more effective technique right right what's the uh if you again if we come in there today what line do you typically how do you start somebody out what's that line you use i guess it depends on what people want to do how do you start it out yeah, generally speaking, I, I, I will work with uh, a student depending upon what it is they're trying to do. Um, uh, I have had people come that want to, you know, uh, they've already they've already purchased a rod, a reel, a line, and we're simply working with what they have. Mm. And I kind of go over their rig and make sure that you know they're they're in the right grain window for the rod they're using as well as, you know, they've got the right, you know, uh, part of the line connected to their running line. They don't have the back taper on the front and the front taper on the back, that type of thing. But, um, yeah, generally speaking, anyone, um, that shows up that has their own, uh, setup will work with them. But if they want to particularly work, focus on something, whether it's Skagit Scandi or even long belly, um, I can, I have enough of that uh, gear to um, supply anybody that wants to learn any of that. But yeah, that's typically what I see nine times out of 10 is, is a Skagit. And then 10 to 20% of the time it's a Scandi. Gotcha. So it starts with the, the Skagit and, and what is the starting point? So if somebody comes with the Skagit, say they have a little bit of experience, where do you start them? What's the first thing you're doing? And are you doing this? Is this on the water? Yeah, we do all the, I do all my classes on the water. Um, and that's the environment that you're going to be, you know, fishing. So that's where we go. Um, the first thing is, you know, grip and stance and how to hold the rod. Um, make sure your feet are pointed in the direction you intend to cast things like that. Um, how you grip the rod, uh, is pretty important. I always try to tell people that if you're, you know, your top hand, you pretend you're holding an egg in your hand rather than the, uh, the cork of a, of a fly rod. So, um, things like that. Yeah. We work on fundamentals. The first thing we do in the water is just simply doing a roll cast, mm. um, uh, the deadline roll cast. And then yep. after we do, we do that, we do that with both hands, left hand on top, right hand on top and, or, um, off shoulder or cack handed, mm -hmm. learning to do that roll cast. And what that does is it teaches you how to use your hands. Um, yeah. every cast, every spade cast starts, I, I call it from the ground up. You know, you, your first motions are start from your ankles, the soles of your feet to your ankles, to your knees, to your hips and up. The last thing you move is your hands. And it's important. I mean, we're, we're standing on rocks per se. So it's your, where, how you stand is, isn't always ideal, but, um, 
you do want to be balanced and be able to move without, you know, falling over. And I think most people who think they want to learn how to spay cast may or may not um, have the skill or be used to, you know, wading a river. I've been doing it since years old, so it's not a big deal for me to dance across the rocks. But, but for somebody who's just beginning, who's maybe stood in a boat and trout fished for 30 years to get out of the river and, and step into the river, it's, um, wading is skill that's highly, highly underrated. But if you're steelhead fishing, <laughs> moving water, it can save your life. Yeah. And also, um, it's also super important on how you fish. And also, yeah, that along with in steelhead, especially because you'll find yourself in sometimes ankle deep water. And then all of a sudden you'll be in waist deep water and casting a spay line, right? Changing depths is not always easy too for the beginner. Yeah, and if you're fishing some of those places that steelhead like to hang out, like Ledge Rock on some of these rivers, you know, you could easily go from ankle deep to yep. chest and chin deep in one step. Yep. You know, right. who fish the Umpqua, people who fish um, the Soul Duck and some of these other places, they know exactly what, what I'm talking about. But your capacity to wade is a skill that I don't think people talk about when it comes to spay casting, but it's super, super important. Today's episode is sponsored by Angler's Coffee. They've got a dry dropper going on right now. This is a killer, easy on the go um, coffee sampler you can take with you wherever you go. You just need some hot water. Joe has over 40 years of experience in coffee. We've had Joe on the podcast. He's talked about his story. It's a good one. Um, He knows all about coffee. And I can tell you, this will be probably the best coffee you've ever tasted. So check out Joe right now. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices. You can rest easy knowing you're doing your part. They also roast and ship within 48 hours to assure freshness. You know, I love cracking open that uh, bag of coffee in the morning, and uh, it's what keeps me going. It's what's got me going right now. I got up really early this morning. I've been going for about four hours already, and uh, and I'm good to go. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go, like I said before, Joe has you covered. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now. That's A-N-G-L-E-R-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Angler's Coffee. So you mentioned the both hands. That's a, a good uh, tip there. Do you recommend, you know, when people get into this, whether they're right or left-handed, to really always be thinking about learning to do everything with both hands on top? I do. From what I can gather and what I've done in research about spay casting and how it originated in the in the UK, there was really one and one and only cast, and it was a single spay. Mm-hmm. If you were on the left bank, your right hand was on top. And if you were on the right bank, your left hand was on top. And that's, there were no, you know, really, there weren't any snake rolls or double spays or anything like that. That didn't come along until the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, when spay casting first started out. It was either overhead casting um, with a salmon rod or it was, um, or it was simply a single spay with not much angle change either you know 40 degrees 45 degrees was was a lot then Mm. what do you mean by the angle change yeah so i mean if you're going to be making a change of direction cast uh, and that's what spay casting really is is 
you're looking to change direction 90 degrees to, you know, 35, 40 degrees right. to down and across presentation, yep. uh, grease line style. Yep. And that's one of those things that how we fish is, is very, um, it varies between winter and summer, uh, mm-hmm. conditions, but yeah, that angle change is, is a big part of that. Yeah. Okay. And, and I guess today I'm kind of trying to think the couple things, right? You got the Scandi, the Skagit, we could talk about both, but let's just, for this example, maybe now just think, um, Scandi, let's just say it's a Scandi line. You're kind of casting lighter stuff, you know, for maybe summer fish. Um, and you were talking about getting the roll cast. So you work on that both hands doing the cat handed covering that once you kind of work on that a little bit, what's the next step in your, if we're out there with you. The next step is to, you know, learning how to reposition the fly either to the upstream or downstream side, as well as, you know, um, energizing the rod mm-hmm. and create a D loop and how the D loop, we work on the D loop stroke. Um, and the repositioning of the fly yep. in the next step. So we're actually doing change of direction at that point in time. So actually making spay casts, if you will. Yeah. And if you're, let's just say we're looking down, we're looking downstream, river right, r- river left. So if you're on river right and you're right, say you're right hand, you're right handed, you're just, you're not good with the left hand on top, right hand on top. Um, sure. You know, what is the, do you start talking about? The, what are the spade casts? Do you start kind of going through those or how, how do you cover that? Cause I always think so that, like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. The intro to that, um, would, uh, change of direction cast for river, right. Is a double spay. Yeah. You know, um, that's, that's the cast that I teach primarily for that situation. Um, we do with, with the Scandi line. Um, sometimes we will, uh, take it to a touch and go with a, a snake roll, depending upon the student, whether they're ground floor beginner or whether they're somebody who's uh, more intermediate and looking to take uh, another step forward and try to do something different. Okay. And so the double spay, describe that if you can. I know some of this is going to be hard, but describe the, yeah. uh, the the double spay. Sure. Well, think of it, and the way I break it down is it's a three movements. There's the lift um, to bring the fly from the uh, from downstream close to the caster hopefully within yep. a rod's length to downstreams and that's kind of the shotgun shotgun lift is that a good analogy yeah it's a lift a shotgun lift and then simply just crossing your arms to where your where your uh, right arm now becomes your upstream yep. hand and then uncrossing your arms to develop the d loop um, and swinging the rod tip back down to the downstream side and up in a kind of a, uh, a slightly rising angle and then making the forward cast from there. So there's the lift reposition and then there's the D loop. That's the second movement. And then the third movement is the forward cast, the forward cast. And you mentioned earlier about the grip and how like the, um, the bottom hand, let's just say in this situation, you're going to, you're sweeping through. How are you sweeping through using that bottom hand? Are you using that through the sweep before you even get to use it for the forward cast? That's a great question. The idea is like when I, when I make that first movement, um, the lift and I cross my arms, my, my arms are now crossed in front of me with the tip pointed upstream. 
my bottom hand is on my downstream side. And as I uncross my arms, I'm pulling with my bottom hand. I try not, I try to tell people that you shouldn't be pulling with your top hand. Mm. The idea is the bottom hand is the leverage point. Your top hand is just the fulcrum. So as I'm uncrossing my arms, I'm pulling with my bottom hand across in front of me and then around and up underneath my, my right elbow. So my, my bottom hand is my left hand and I'm pulling as I'm uh, uncrossing my arms. And it's, it's a strange thing to get, to get used to, but I find that if you're, if you're not pulling with the top hand, you're going to get the rod to load um, the strongest portion of the rod, just the butt end of the rod. Um, if you're pulling with your top hand, you're only bending a portion of the rod. You're not bending the most uh, powerful part of the rod, which is the butt section. Oh, right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to picture, but. And it's hard, you know, I, I was just doing this recently out on the water trying to help, you know, somebody get, you know, basics, right? Basics 101. And that is a challenge, that sweep through, because depending on your angle, you know, up or down or how low and how fast you go or a continuous motion, there's a lot of places in there, you know, even before you get to the forward cast, you know, or the D loop, and then you have the D loop. It seems like the D loop is maybe the easier piece to think about, but this sweep is challenging. What do you think is the cha most challenging part of teaching this? Well, the other variable that you were uh, just to step back is that one of the things that you see is how deep you wade will also mm. affect how you cast. Um, yeah, and that get and that changes. Um, but I think the most challenging thing is is to try to convey that that this is a finesse thing. Ninety um, percent of what I I talk to people about is slowing down and keeping their hands in front of them. If you start to move your hands outside of away from off to the side, either left or right too much, then the rod is out of position, but keeping everything in front of you and, and trying to stay smooth with your movements. No, no, uh, no hesitation. And, and just slow down. Yeah. I mean, the three things that help most people quite a bit is is to is to just slow down, try to stay smooth, and try to relax. Um, right. And not not force it. Yeah, yeah, that is challenging. So, so you're sweeping through, keeping it low, and then you come up. Talk about that when you're sweeping through, and then you get to the D loop. How are you setting up the D loop? Um, I try to set up the D loop directly. You know opposite the direction I intend to cast. So if I'm going to go 90 degrees, in other words, change direction directly across stream, um, I want my D loop 90 degrees, you know, in the rears mm -hmm. of me, right? So anytime you get an angle deflection or change of angle where those, the direction you intend to cast is not the direction of the D loop that leads to problems. And it's hard to see that because that requires another pair of eyes because you can't really see where your D loop is pointed when you're standing in the water trying to make a cast. And that's one of the things we work on. And you, another one of my tips is to, 
if you really want to um, develop a great forward cast, it's just like with single-handed casting. You have to develop a good back cast. And I'm, yeah. D-loop, the D-loop stroke is no different. The tighter you can get it, the more tension you can create, the more uh, effective and easy it will be for you to, to make those casts. Cast for and then on that D loop. So like you're saying, the cat if if the D loop's directly behind you, you're basically 180 degrees essentially from where that D loop is is where you're shooting. That's where you want to shoot your line. Exactly. And before you do all that, you have to make sure your feet, your hips, and your shoulders are pointed that direction too. Oh, right. So before yeah. you've ever even moved the rod or tried to tried to make the right, you've got to make sure that you're you're physically pointing in the direction you want to cast and most people think that the rotation for change of direction casts in the spay game come from the shoulders. Well, it actually comes from the hips because you can't, you can't really turn your shoulders without turning your hips. And so the, this is where people can kind of get twisted, twisted up literally <laughs> it is to um, use the arms and the shoulders more than then they use their hips. It's much easier to change direction and turn your upper body with your, if you focus on your, moving your hips than it is trying to do it with your shoulders and arms because you're, you simply won't be able to reach the change of direction, the angle, the lift, things like that by just moving your arms only. Um, Skagit is different. Skagit's, you can do most of that stuff. Um, if you keep everything in front of you, you don't have to turn quite as much but for mid belly and longer belly stuff um you're gonna have to you're gonna have to turn your learn to turn your hips right right that's the thing with the skagit and some of these things you know get super uh super short super short yeah and some of those it makes it um just with all that weight like the fire hose thing i mean you could do a lot of things wrong and still shoot it like 60 80 feet right right well can't really shoot 80 feet or line if you've stood in a river uh, and tried to manage any more than 40 or 50 feet of running line, it gets really complicated after that. That's right. Just because of the nature of shooting line and moving water is, yeah. is very effective. Do you do on that shooting line, do you, let's say you are trying to shoot a bunch of line with the Skagit, are you putting a bunch of like loops in your hand, just having all the line off the water and the loops and then shoot it out from there? Yeah, as much as possible. And I try to keep my loops off my bottom hand so that um, when I let go of my loops, they don't foul on the reel seat or the reel handle. So I keep everything below the reel oh. when, when I coil. Right. In this situation with your, um, yeah, you'd be using it with your left hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 If, if I'm right hand on top, left yeah. hand on bottom, I'm holding my coils off my pinky finger of my mm. um left hand okay there you go nice this is cool so so yeah so we're kind of in the cast and then um as we kind of go along in this i know we're kind of not hitting everything but as we go through we're saying the d loop on the forward cast talk about that how how do you do that transition so you got this nice the d loop can be smaller or bigger but let's just say you got a decent d loop out there what's the forward cast look like the forward cast right my first move for the forward cast is to simply try to transition my weight from, uh, if I'm, if I'm got my weight 50, 50, um, distributed from my front foot to my back foot, 
then I'm simply moving my weight to my forward leg. Mm. And that's the initial movement of the forward cast for me. That becomes my, my, um, the start of my forward cast just to move my weight to my front leg smoothly. Mm-hmm. And that actually starts the butt moving uh, in the direction that I want to cast. And I don't really want to do anything else at that point. Um, the first part of the cast is with the butt of the rod in the direction I intend to cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great tip. And I don't pull down until I'm, um, I, I want to keep my tip in a lagging position. I want to keep the tip of my rod in a lagging position for as long as I can. So moving that, moving my weight to my front leg starts the momentum. Now when I uh, transition that momentum to my bottom hand, the rod's already moving. So I'm not really, I'm not really, I'm not really using uh, my bottom. I'm just starting to use my bottom hand at that point. And then I'm still pulling and I'm gently pulling and I don't really accelerate until I get to almost the end of that. And then I roll the tip over and then immediately focus on stopping the rod with both hands at the exact same time. That's one of the things I've learned is that if you're going to stop again with single handed casting, you have to stop the rod to unload it. Spay casting is no different, but a lot of times if someone's pushing with their top hand, bottom hand is already stopped moving. Oh, right. Because they can't pull it any farther. It's now touching their waist or their belly. And if they're still pushing at that point in time, then the stop's not as effective. Right. You got to have the abrupt stop. What's the tip on if somebody is struggling with using their top hand? What what do you, what do you tell them? Um, I come back to my egg. Yeah. Um, Pretend you're holding an egg in your hand and you're not going to squeeze until uh, you're not going to squeeze that egg until you stop. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is um, uh, I try to get people who are real top hand dominant. um, I'll have them move their their top hand lower on the cork Mm. um, because this forces them to use their their um, their bottom hand more a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But it also it also, you know. If we're talking about the physics 101 and the relationship between the lever and the fulcrum, the top hand is that pivot point fulcrum. And if you move the top hand lower, slightly lower, then you you increase the power of the lever, which is your bottom hand. So you get more leverage for your bottom hand if your top hand is slightly uh, slightly lower than than you would otherwise uh, mm-hmm. grip. I mean, if uh, I try to tell people shoulder width apart okay. on their hands wider, um, and if you're gripping the very top of the cork with your top hand, you're probably too high with your grip. Yep. So if you're on the upper third or the upper half of that top cork, that's a more efficient place for your pivot point in your fulcrum that's great that's great so and then and then how what's your hand how are you holding the with your top hand how, how's that look on your on the cork um i keep uh i try to keep my hand somewhat open and relaxed palm up and uh with my bottom hand i 
on the lower grip, I keep my palm palm down. And when I rotate out of my D loop just prior to the forward, uh, the start of the forward cast, I want to make sure the palm of my top hand is pointed in the direction of the cast that I intend to make. Oh, wow. There you go. Yeah, there's all sorts of, I mean, these are all cool, great tips and things that, you know, to think about out there. Um, so you're getting around, and so you make that cast, um, you know. Much e- yeah. Much, much easier to demonstrate than it is to talk about. Well, anybody that's doing it, I mean, it's like right now, I'm kind of doing it with the motions, you know, you can kind of do that and be thinking if you've done it before. If you're brand new to it, yeah, some of this stuff might be a little challenging. What, what about, um, as we talk through this, like the trout spay? You know, if somebody's coming in, they maybe aren't interested in steelhead. Maybe they, they're light, talking lighter. Is that would the conversation here be different? No, absolutely not. You're just you're just using um, a lighter uh, a lighter rod and a lighter line um, when it comes to, to the size of the fish that you're going after. I mean, Alaskan fishing for rain in Alaska is a lot different than fishing um, south of the of the forty eighth parallel, yeah. but um, I'm sure there's somebody out there right now laughing because they know, uh, they know a, a great spot to catch, uh, Alaska size rainbows, um, yep. in the lower 48, but right. I, where I live, um, not so much, Yeah, but, uh, That's right. yeah, there's a difference between an eight to 10 pound Alaskan, eight to 12 pound Alaskan rainbow from Acneck as there is from That's the, right. the 18 to 20 incher in Montana or 25 incher on in Montana or Oregon as well. Yeah. And uh, for your fishing, are you focused on, you know, yourself? Is steelhead your main focus or what are you, what are you doing using the spay for out there? I mean, Steelhead fishing, um, I, I intend to do more trout fishing and, and trout spay in the near future. Um, we've had such shortened seasons for steelhead, but if you're willing to travel um, and do your homework, I mean, you could literally fish steelhead 365 days a year, yeah. uh, obviously notwithstanding the winter conditions that make uh, – rivers unfishable for days and weeks on end but you you could literally um and i've always that's always been my focus i mean i've i've done some bass fishing in between the time that i transitioned from gear fishing for steelhead to to fly fishing for steelhead but there i love fishing for bass especially with a fly rod it's it's a blast in between you know that the close of the winter season in early April uh, to the the reopening yeah. of the steelhead waters in June. Um, it's a good time to go out and bass fish. So it's a good, it's a good side thing. Yeah. Are you swing? Are you spay for bass? No. Uh, yeah. It's, it's single handed fishing. Yep. It's just, you know, uh, on lakes per se. And um, it's, it's yes, primarily. Yeah single-handed fishing right so so you're mainly and so for spay and your yourself are you kind of you've got are you kind of equal skagit scandy stuff or what's your thing if you had to pick you know your favorite kind of steelhead fishing set gear setup what are you using 
I really enjoy um, using my favorite way to fish is to fish a floating line with a long leader and either a wet fly or a dry fly. Yeah. That's the preferred method of fishing. Um, and with that's like a, a scandy? Um, scandy or mid belly. Yeah. yeah. Or even long belly on the right, the right side river. What's that difference between say the scandy mid belly versus long belly? I mean, I, obviously the lines are, yeah. Talk about that just kind of quickly. What's it? I'll tell you the story. So yeah. the story that goes with it, the day that I was, I was fishing the snake river, um, just upstream from a between the mouth of the grand Ronde mm-hmm. and the town of a And, um, uh, it was a particularly, uh, great day of fishing. Um, and it was in the fall and, um, I had had some success. I was fishing a 13 and a half foot rod with a Scandi setup, And, um, I had caught some fish in close, you know, like say within, you know, 80 feet of where I was standing. And, but I could still see fish rolling that were out at a hundred to 125 feet away from where I was, <laughs> but I wasn't able to I wasn't able to make the cast because the amount of line I was trying to shoot wouldn't shoot with, with the strength of the flow. So, um, transitioning in that same situation to a 15 foot rod with a, a 60 foot, uh, floating head, um, all of a sudden that, that problem was, it wasn't a problem anymore <laughs> because I didn't have to shoot as much line. All uh, right. I could carry more line. Yeah outside the rod tip and yep. then, uh, if I needed to shoot another 30 feet, that wasn't a problem, but trying to shoot 60 feet of line, this is going back to one of our things we were talking about earlier, standing waist deep in a river, um, with a medium, you know, flows and trying to shoot 50, 60 feet of running line is, is pretty yep. much impossible. Right. It just doesn't work. So it's getting the right line again, getting the right tool for the job, the situation. Yeah. And the, and, you know, and we wait, you know, for winter fishing and using skagits, um, those lines are, you know, much more, the grain weight is much more concentrated in a shorter, shorter distance of the line. So shooting line is a little bit easier with that type of a setup. Do you know what I mean? Since it's so, uh, heavy weight forward. Yeah. And again, going back to this is more historic, historic, but, you know, going back to the, the early days with the spay, how were people fishing for winter fish? Like you had to get down if we didn't have the, those skagit lines, what were people using? Yeah, that was, um, that was where the, the voodoo, uh, came in, you know, yeah. kind of, uh, cutting, that was cutting it. Lines up. Yeah. Cutting up double tapers and, yeah. And using it on that Rio, that first real line. Yep. 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 And splicing in and, um, that was it. Yeah. You know, it was, a it was very much an evolution to the, to what first became known as a Skagit line. But those first Skagit lines were, were very similar to a double taper. They were, mm. didn't have a lot of front taper. Um, and typically with, with double taper lines in the, for salmon and steelhead rods, um, they call them salmon rods in the UK, but mm, yep. um, the double tapers, you know, they only, if you were lucky, they had, you know, six to eight feet of, of a taper on any <laughs> end of it. It was just level line. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, 
guys were splicing different size diameter lines together and then putting sink tips on them to try to, but the hardest thing was finding line stock that was heavy enough, you know? Right. And all you had to make it out of was stuff that you were trying to, you know, reaching into, um, a box of fly lines all designed for single handed. And you were trying to come up with a line that would work for a two handed rod. And it was, it was a mighty struggle. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a mighty struggle. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So, so back to that Scandi again. So, uh, so the Scandi versus the mid versus the long belly, what, what is the the difference there? Yeah. Well, the long belly is, you know, it's more touch and go cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scandi, you can do your waterborne anchor cast, like your double spay, snap tee, yep. or you can touch and go, you know, snake rolls and single spays. But with long belly you know, lines and mid belly lines, they, they work better with longer rods and they mm. really lend themselves to, to the, uh, touch and go tie. Uh, touch uh, and go. That's uh, it. The touch cast. So yeah. if you're on a big, yeah, if you're, like you said, if you're on a big river, you're making long casts. And, uh, and then it's probably better to learn that, get the bigger rod and get that dialed in versus say the Scandi, which is a little more diverse. Although it seems like Scandies are typically used mostly for the same sort of thing, right? Summer steelhead or cat. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot, I think you can do a lot of presentations in the winter with Scandi. There are systems that work really well. I mean, Rio, they have their Versaleader system and they have mm-hmm. their Versaleaders. Um, I think the the greatest density is seven inches per second. And that sinks pretty quickly, especially if you're using a, um, a lightly weighted fly and it's dressed pretty lightly as well. Um, and it does work well, um, Mm -hmm. uh, big water. Right. Yeah. You could use those for some situation. I'm just thinking too, we're heading out to, um, you know, here this winter, we're going to head out to the, uh, like the Great Lakes and fish some of that stuff out there with uh, Jeff Liskey. He's got, you know, and it's a little different, smaller rivers, not as deep. And, um, and I know the lines they like, well, he mentioned was like the spay light from, uh, scientific anglers and right. And so these are just little, they're, you know, different, but again, we could probably use, like you're saying, probably use a Scandi line with a, uh, with the Rio Versa tip sort of stuff. I'm sure over there. Yeah. I mean, I try to match the rod and the line with the water that and this and the fish that I'm looking for. So yeah, you're shorter. They make some short Scandi heads as well as short Skagit lines, um, mm-hmm. rods in say um, eleven and a half to twelve and a half feet. Yep. And it just depends on uh, how much room you have, um, how brushy is the bank, how wide open is the river. Most of the things that we see on the on the uh, uh, coastal streams is a lot of overhanging trees and not a lot of big gravel bars. Um, yeah, that's right. Like like the uh, interior sound rivers. But um, yeah, I've never been to Michigan and fished, or in the Midwest. I've never never done that. I know Ed Ward. Yeah, is doing some of that for trout fishing and. I think it was in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, uh, but I'm sure he's fishing. I'm sure he's fished in Michigan as well. And he loves fishing a two-hander. So yep. I'm sure that's the way he's doing it. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bar, made in Vancouver, Washington, by a small team of passionate outdoor enthusiasts. 
The range team uses only high-quality gluten-free ingredients that they feel good about fueling their adventures with, and they don't use brown rice syrup as a sweetener. That's a key uh, bonus. I know I've been eating these uh, range meal bars for a while now, and they definitely pack a solid punch. Good tasting, um, you know, and this is one of those things where if you're out and you miss a dinner, uh, this thing packs more of a punch than any of your other little bars that are out there. And I've eaten just about every bar you can imagine. Uh, you know, you name it, Cliff Bars, Power Bars, whatever, um, Gatorade Bars, all of it. And the nice thing about Range is they're all about packing what is more like a meal. So you're going to get what you need if you miss a meal. Uh, and, and I always have one of these in my pack, in my vest, whatever. It's always there. Range Bars are the most compact and convenient nutrition solution to get you out the door and on the river. Each bar, like I said, is packed 700 calories and it's a legitimate meal. Check them out right now at wetflyswing.com slash range, range meal bars, R-A-N-G-E. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link to range. So again, go, I guess going back to your, you know, it's say steelhead numbers are up. Things are great here. Like they hopefully will be in, in some years, you know, a few years. What's the river or the type of fishing, you, you know, if you had to pick one style, what, what do you love most? I love fishing the, the, the Olympic Peninsula and fishing those rivers out on the coast. And you can fish those rivers because they don't have dams or anything like that on them. There's fish in in those rivers 365 days a year number was wise is diminished a great deal but if i could fish one place uh, it would be a toss-up between that and you know british columbia yeah um, on the skeena system right is the skeena quite a bit different than fishing the op the style you know i've never fished bc in the winter time, I've only ever fished it in August, or October, early November. And it's, it's a wonderful place to dry fly fish for steelhead. And that's one of the things that kind of, I don't understand why, but a lot of those fish are surface oriented. And maybe it's the amount of pressure they get. I don't know, but they seem to be very aggressive to to dry flies and maybe it's because they're mostly wild fish. Um, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's pretty crazy and it is a little bit different than the OP. Their glaciers for, for the Skeena system are still mostly intact, although they are seeing a, a rap, a more rapid melt of their, of their glaciers in, in the last 15 years. Um, we almost have no glaciers left on the Olympic Peninsula. Oh, wow. No kidding. Almost, yeah, they're almost all gone. Yeah, I mean, that is crazy. So they're they're almost all gone. And that affects, obviously, water levels, right, later in the season. Is, is this OP, when's the, typically on a normal year where you have fish in there, how later, when, when are you starting to fish that? When are you ending? Well, with winter fishing, um, usually winter fishing starts, you see hatchery fish start to show up around Thanksgiving. Um, so late November, you do see some of the, some wild fish showing up early as well with the OP it's, it's in, especially as you progress into the winter season, it's all about, um, the weather. I mean, in a, you're in a place where it can rain five inches in a day. And so, um, 
when the river comes back into sh fishable shape after a after a two or three day you know deluge, um, when the rivers drop back into shape, there's usually a fish or two to be caught almost anywhere. But um, the weather's a big a big factor um, yeah. on the open especially later in the season later. and then you could fish all the way. Yeah. Through the, through, uh, through the winter, um, from about, you know, June sometime in June through the month of October, you get, um, pretty, pretty steady river flows and you don't see a lot of fluctuations. Oh, right. You rarely see, um, any of those rivers reaching, um, high water, in the late summer, early fall, but and not saying it can't happen, but yeah. just the volume of water that that falls from the sky and into the rivers from the start of November through the spring can be uh, pretty pretty spectacular over there. Keeps everything green, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's definitely and on the OP. I mean, so there it's a long season there of steelhead fishing. Yeah, I mean, our seasons for winter have gotten shorter over the last few years. We used to be able to fish through the month of April um, as early as, you know, 10 years ago. But this year, they shut all the rivers down in the end of February. Um, so it was, a, it was forecasted and the season was set to continue through the month of March. But they say that escapement numbers were were low were so low that it couldn't sustain itself through the entire scheduled season and then uh the queets river has been closed for the last two years for fishing so our opportunities are dwindling right and then it um and then it reopens again after it after the like well right now it's uh we're kind of in uh september october so yeah they're open now so it opens back up in for the summer. Yeah, June, June, um, the first weekend in June or Memorial Day weekend is usually when most of the that's kind of the marker of the beginning of the summer or spring, uh, yeah, or fall season of gotcha fishing around here. Well, hopefully, yeah. the nice thing about doing these podcast episodes is that kind of the content is evergreen, you know, so. Imagine three, four years from now, whenever as this episode is still out there, right? Somebody picks it up. Maybe the numbers of you know have changed a little bit, and it's open. But if you're so, you've got that winter time or the summertime. Do you do you like one or the other, uh, or is it kind of equal? Yeah, I like I said, I prefer to fish in the summer and fall. Yeah. you know, and fishing floating line. Yep, and a long leader uh, with a dry fly or a wet fly only. I I, I enjoy winter fishing. Um, but it is more the, um, uh, you know, the sink tips and, you know, you're, you're usually wearing at least three layers of clothing just right. to stay. Yeah. Um, What's it like there now? Like right now it's literally right early September. I'm looking outside and I can see the cascades and it's, uh, it's going to be a beautiful 80 degree day. Oh, wow. There's not a cloud in the sky. And are there, are there people and it's open for fishing? Yes. Yep. And there's folks out there, you see some people going for it. Oh yeah. Um, there's fish, there are fish, uh, in the Columbia in the tributaries of the Columbia right now. Um, and there are people that are actually catching them. 
I haven't talked to anybody who's fished um, on any of the coastal streams um, recently, but the interior sound and the Columbia Tribs have fishing. The Puyallup River right now has kings and silvers migrating upstream, and uh, the lower reaches of those rivers are people are lined up shoulder to shoulder to to get them. I'm not one of those people standing shoulder to shoulder, but yep. uh, I have been fishing um, one of the tributaries to the Columbia, and there are fish. There are definitely fish uh, available and around right now. Right, right, nice. Summer runs, you know, six to six to eight pounds, you know, a runs. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, hatchery fish. Yep. What's your, and you, you may have said this already, but so the, the setup you're using for, um, what does that look like as far as your rod, uh, and line for this, for, you know, you're fishing this time of year. Yeah. I'm usually fishing, um, you know, th- something in the 13 and a half to 15 foot range with, uh, a head length of 40 to 60 feet, mm-hmm. depending on the rod I'm fishing. And then, you know, a seven weight or an eight weight this time of the year. I mean, uh-huh. you can get away with a six yeah, or a five. Um, yep. you give up some horsepower with that. Yeah. But, uh, this is the time of the year where a lot of times I'm trying to fish my fly a little faster than most people given the conditions with low clear water. Mm-hmm. What's that fly line you're using? If you say you have a seven weight, you know, in, in that range. Yeah. So, I've got a real med mid belly, uh, and I also uh, use some of the Nextcast uh, mm-hmm. product as well for a mid belly, and then I use mostly Nextcast or Boss for a long line of sixty feet or more. Mm-hmm. Nice, and they work with that fifteen to sixteen foot length rod, and yeah. that's really reaching way out there. Right, that's, long cast. Yeah, that's long, long cast. Yeah, and then what's your leader look like for that? Um, generally I fish with, uh, the floating line, I'll fish the length of the rod. So mm-hmm. if I've got a 13 and a half foot rod, I'm fishing 13 and a half to 14 foot for my leader. And, and then a little bit longer if, uh, if I'm in that 15 to 16 foot, but mm-hmm. yeah, yep. generally matching, you know, the, the nylon leader with the length of the rod. Like the and what does that leader look like? How are you like from your tip it up? What what do you? How's that look? Yeah, a lot of times um, I'll build my own leaders. So I usually start with 20, 20 pound test, and I'll go eight feet of twenty, and I'll go four feet of fifteen, two feet of two uh, of ten pound. Mm-hmm. So you have each section is half as long as the previous. Mm, mm-hmm. So you're building a, building a taper, uh, building a taper leader just by, you know, joining together with either double surgeon mm-hmm. or blood knot. Nice. Nice. Are you ever, uh, ever using two flies on there? I've used two flies in the past, uh-huh. but, uh, a lot of times right now we're fishing rivers that will only allow you to fish one hook. All oh, right. So there are some places where you can um, you can fish a two a dry fly with a with a wet fly underneath it or behind it. I haven't done that for a long time, but I but I have done it before. But 
it just seems like um, more often than not, you're fishing on um, selective gear rules with uh, single barbless hooks. Yeah, right, right, so right. For anadromous fish around here these days, you can do that with trout fishing. I mean, I've I've done that with trout uh, spay fish a dry fly and a wet fly, a soft tackle behind it for trout spaying, and that's 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 real fun. It's a great way to fit. Um, to skate a dry and then fish to put a little bit of fluorocarbon behind that and then put on a soft tackle, a small soft tackle and oh yeah, let her rip. Right. A soft tackle. So that's a good one you liked when you're swinging for steelhead. Well, for trout. Oh, for trout. Yeah. 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 Trout. Yeah. Trout. But a lot of the, a lot of the, the flies that I fish in the fall are very traditional looking. Uh-huh. Old school. Yeah. Old school, old plate soft tackle esque. Yeah. One of my very first the very first fly tying um class I ever took was from Alec Jackson and oh, he wow. taught me Yeah, he taught me how to tie three flies and the first one was a was his spade. Um, uh-huh. it was a, a skunk spade. And then he, I learned how to tie a sock river grub from him. And then there was a third fly, but I don't remember what he called it, but and you know size size eight to size two, mm-hmm. you know, yep. on a steelhead iron. Yeah, I mean those little tiny, yeah, the little speck, right? Steelhead love, especially summer steelhead. The almost the smaller the better, the sparse stuff. They love that. Yeah, moving faster too than what you would move. You know, swinging that thing faster than what you would swing it in the say the winter time oh, right. with water with water temperatures, you know, forty degrees or less. Yeah. Um, bringing that thing across more broadside and a little bit, a little bit quicker and, um, in low clear water, that soft tackle approach can be pretty deadly. Yep. That's awesome. What, what are your, if you had to pick a couple of your favorite flies for steelhead, what, what are the couple? Be a muddler, riffle hitching a muddler or, or, um, um, or a dry fly, um, wet fly, like a purple peril. I caught my very first floating line steelhead on a green butted skunk, you know, things like that, you know, soft tackle again, soft tackle style steelhead caddis. Yeah. What was that first steelhead? You, you, what was that like? That was on the Klamath, and it was in the summer and it was one of those days it was overcast and it was kind of muggy and I hiked a long way upstream to get to this pool that I wanted to fish. And, um, I tried to dry fly first and I rolled a fish, but I never got it to come back. And then I walked back upstream and tied on, um, a skunk and covered the, the water close to where I thought, where I, where I saw that, where I'd rolled that fish. And sure enough, um, uh, fish climbed right on and, uh, it was a chrome bright, 10 pound beautiful wild hen and um uh never forget it and it was just electric electric that's cool so you changed it up you changed up the fly and and you got that same fish yeah well what possibly could have been that fish i don't know there may have been more there but right that was the one that that came for it but yeah um yeah pretty amazing i remember the very first time i caught my very first dry fly fish but it was, um, those, those are things you never forget. And that's mm-hmm. one of the 
is about fishing is that you build some of those memories and have those experiences that kind of sear themselves into you. And, um, it's the beautiful thing about what we do, mm-hmm. you know, it is. I'm not interested in nymphing for steelhead. I'm not interested in doing anything like that. I'm, it's all about the tug and it's yeah. all about, you know, will this fish show itself, you yeah. know, on the surface and, right. and it becomes a game. Right. What do you do when you get a fish that you swing it through and, and you get a little, that little tap? What's your, what's your next move? Do nothing. Yep. Right? Don't jerk. Don't do anything. A lot of times I'll take a few steps back. Oh, so you do. So before you cast, you get a tap, you'll, you'll take two steps back. I'll, I'll, I'll step backwards three, two, three steps, and um, I'll sing myself a song. You know, wait a few minutes before I make another cast. Um, and if I don't get anything, then I try to change the fly. Yeah. By back, do you mean back upstream or back uh, towards the bank? Upstream. Yeah. 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 Upstream. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird puzzle and we, we're never going to have all the pieces, but we feel like pretty good when we can put together an image that looks like something we've seen on the box. You know what I mean? No, describe that. Of the puzzle. So, you know, whenever you buy a puzzle, you, you get a picture on the box of the puzzle of what this thing's supposed to look oh, like. Right. Take a thousand pieces and put it all together. Yeah. But fishing, we never get all the puzzle. We never get the puzzle completely done. It's, we, we just try to hopefully find something that looks, you know, recognizable. Yeah. I had a, uh, Oh, a week or so ago, I had a fish that, you know, came through, it tapped it. I put the same cast right back on it. The next cast, it tapped it again. And then I put the same cast right back on it a third time and it, and it tugged it, pulled it. And then, and then after that, I didn't, and I tried to switch up, but didn't get anything. What, what if you had one of those where it pulls or what do you do? I still kind of waiting. Maybe I, maybe yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I'll wait and I'll take a couple steps back and then I'll gradually get to where I was. And if I take my you know, three steps or two steps downstream after I've taken them, you know, going backstream and still got nothing, then I'll step back upstream and change flies. You know what I mean? And just try to figure it out. And I had a, you know, I've had this happen before where I'm fishing a dry fly and somebody that I'm fishing with is, is not fishing a dry fly. So they like, they put me out front so that, that I can, you know, show them where the fish are. And I've had that happen many times where a fish will show itself to me on a dry fly, but I can't get it to, you know, and then, um, eventually, you know, the two or three people that I'm fishing or one of the two people that I'm fishing with is going to be in my hip pocket. And so I've either got to step down or do, you know, do something drastic or do something different. But very often I've walked past that fish and said, okay, well, and turned to my buddy behind me and said, well, you just, you're going to get a gift. So just keep coming. And sure enough, they'll, they'll pick them up with their wet fly. I don't know when I'm fishing by myself, uh, and fishing dry flies. I, that's what I prefer to do. Cause I can take my time and, and play with that fish and see what it is that will bring them back if, if at all. But I'd say my success rate is, is probably 50%. If I've gotten a fish to show itself to me, they could keep working them. If they're if they're going to keep showing themselves, I'm going to keep working them. 
All right. So, um, so as we wrap this up, uh, Charles, I just want to take it away with the, um, you know, I know you do some, some flies, right? You're selling flies. You're doing a lot of tying out there. Describe that a little bit for somebody that wants to connect with you there. So I'm a contract tire for Hobo or excuse me for, uh, solitude and have been for a while. George brought me into that. Um, I do a hobo spay. I do a foxy dog, which is kind of a temple dog, um, take off of, uh, of a fly. Um, I also do custom flies for clients who are taking fishing trips, things like that. Um, I just love tying flies. I think I don't know anybody that has fallen in love with steelhead or salmon fishing fly fishing and not fallen in love with with the flies it's it's to me it's the it's highly artistic and it's it's beautiful and i love doing it um i don't think my flies will ever wind up in a frame um i probably tied maybe six flies in my lifetime that could would be good enough to go into a frame in the last 25 years, 30 years. But, uh, it's such a cool art. It's just a great art form and love everything about, about, the to love fishing. Fly fishing is to love flies. It really is. Nice. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Alec Jackson. I mean, that was, you know, you, somebody taught you early on one of the guys that's known for, like his style what what's one thing just on him that you remember that about his his tying style that made him so um unique i guess well he was super efficient in his uh technique and he he dressed his flies pretty sparsely i think um a lot of uh people think you know more is better so they put more materials on them than they probably should um and alec was really really conservative with his his use of his materials. He didn't like chenille, so he made his own. You know, he used ostrich and he twist it using um, either wire or um, French silk floss and he would twist it up. He did the same thing with um, peacock curl. Um, a lot of really cool stuff, but primarily he, he, he dressed his flies fairly sparsely and the flies had a lot of action as a result, if you know what I mean. It's pretty amazing to see the difference between what two turns of marabou will do as opposed to five or six. The weight of the material when it's wet, um, it just it doesn't move the same as, as a lighter amount, is less. But yeah, he was a really generous guy. Um, we exchanged um, numbers and he. He, he also sent me some books on poetry. He sent me some, some books. Um, he was a great, uh, very avid reader books that he enjoyed as well as some things that I might benefit from, from the standpoint of fly tying some references. He, um, had references to Jock Scott's works. Um, he signed fishing as well as fine and far off. Anyway, but yeah, yeah his, that's great. The flight tying stuff was awesome. Alec. I think Dave McNeese uh, is still maybe I don't know. He was talking about working a, on a book about his life, so I'm not sure if that's out yet. I'll have to check on that. Put in the yeah. show notes, but um, 
But no, Charles, this has been uh, this has been awesome today. I appreciate you. I know you got to run here pretty quick, so um, just want to thank you for all your time today. And yeah, the good resource. We'll definitely send people out to northwestspaycasting.com if they uh, need a lesson or you know some flies. I, I hope to connect with you as well, and uh, you know definitely maybe pick your brain a little more down the line. We didn't talk about music. That was one thing I know you have uh, a kind of a love there. So maybe if we get you on again, we could dig into some That's more good. of those random topics and uh, and go from there. But thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Wetflyswing.com slash 366. 366 will get you everything we talked about. That's usually links. That's usually videos and all the other good stuff. Reminder, we are launching. Actually, we are on the end. We are on the final day of launching. This is the final day. If you want to enter the giveaway to win that Steelhead School with Jeff Liskey and, and yours truly, I'll be out there with Jeff here in a couple months. If you want to get a chance to win that trip along with all the gear from our sponsors, Costa glasses, a sweet pack from Umqua, we got fly lines, the Spaylight stuff from uh, Ang- or from uh, from not from anglers, although uh, anglers is good like we mentioned earlier, uh, from scientific anglers, uh, anglers where the anglers came in, scientific anglers and range meal bars. We got range on as well. Uh, you're going to get a pack of those range meal bars to test those out. And what is the final one? St. Croix. A St. Croix spay rod. So we're going to get you dialed in with everything you need to go. You can check it out right now, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. This is your last chance to join the giveaway. If you want to skip the giveaway, uh, which I don't recommend, I recommend you enter the giveaway. And then you also, if you want to get that trip, you can just send me a DM and we can see if we have slots open right now. Uh, We can get you in there and then you'll get refunded if you win this trip. Okay, that's a deep breath moment. Listener shout out before we get out of here. Chris Thompson. Chris expressed interest in this school when we kicked it off kind of at the start. It turned out those dates didn't work for him. We're going in the first thing in uh, December. But Chris, I want to say thanks for supporting the podcast. I know you've been listening and enjoying things. So I appreciate you for hanging in there and and supporting us. I'd love to hear from you. If you get a chance, send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com or on social media, dave, or actually just wetflyswing. I'd love to hear if you have any feedback for the show, any guests, any topics you'd like to hear, anything you want under the sun. I'm here and and I'm ready to roll. And I'm ready to roll out of here because it is time to get on to the next thing that I got going here. I I love that the, uh, the giveaway is ending today and that means we can announce the winner. I think we're going to be doing a live, uh, maybe a Facebook live event to announce this winner. Stay tuned for that if we do. Um, but I hope I can catch up with you maybe on that river, on those rivers when heading out to the Great Lakes. I'd love to see you on the river. If I can't see you on the river, I'd love to connect with you online, uh, on the river online. And we are going to take it out of here with Juna on the mic. Here we go. Take it away. I hope you have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are in the world. There we go. We got it. That's one. uh, And now we're going to get some flies tied. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.